while, guys. Uh, so good to see um, you know so many uh, faces that I haven't seen in a while. Uh, Stain and Elisa. Hey, you know, Stan, these guys got engaged. Um, I think. Gelukkig, Wanneer was dit? Was nou twee weken terug, nie? Okay, well done. Drie weken, sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All the best trying to organize a wedding in the time of Corona. <laughs> it's difficult. Anyway, so um, so we're picking up we're picking up the story, uh, Mark chapter six, where Drew left off uh, last week, and as Paul mentioned, we're going to look at some well-known passages of scripture, the feeding of the five thousand and. Uh, Jesus walking on the water um, to his disciples who are in the middle of a storm. And um, as Paul mentioned, you know, what a storm this week in Cape Town. Kyle, you missed a really crazy wind storm and an earthquake. It's like it all, it all happened, okay? I mean, I think London Road and uh, Marais Road and pretty much anything between Main Road and Beach Road was like a war zone. Just photos of car, like trees falling on cars and Albury's window got smashed out, her passenger window. It says a gust of wind or something hit the window. And um, for those of you who remember, at the beginning of this year, there was another, like, strong wind. Remember, the beginning of this year. And uh, we were at church in our old venue. And remember that, you know, there's a building that they were building, and a window fell out and uh, fell on Albury's car. <laughs> so, um, yeah, someone, I think someone still came in and said, like, hey, there's a white polo, and the window's falling out. And she's like, I think it's mine. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, we're getting married in a month's time. And so... Um, we're going to continue, you know, living in Seapoint, then if anyone wants to buy a, a Polo Vivo 2010 <laughs> model, then um, you're more than welcome. But uh, yeah, it's been a challenge, right? The last couple of months, like trying to figure out, you know, getting engaged was amazing. And then trying to figure out like, how do we organize a wedding and, you know, um, moving from level five to level one. And it's like, can we even, you know, can we get our family together? And what's this going to be like? And um, and so that's the one thing we've all got in common, right, as we sit here over the last little while, is just the incredible amount of uncertainty um, that there's been, the confusion, the frustration, the regulations, and, um, and there still is so much uncertainty, right, as we sit here right now. We don't know what's, uh, what's going to happen in the next couple of months. We don't know whether, you know, when there's going to be a vaccine or whether this is, you know, a... Uh, recession that's going to, you know, not just last a couple of months, but maybe a couple of years. Or um, we don't know, right? There's so much uncertainty, and um, and so yeah, it's just so good to uh, dig into these passage of scriptures and and really just to pull out something about Jesus and about God that we have a God who is uh, moved with compassion, right? He's moved with compassion, and we have a God who is. Uh, who's moved to take action, which is really, really good news. And those are the two uh, just points of my message today. Um, God is moved with compassion, and he's moved to action. And so we're going to look at those two accounts separately. We'll read the one and dig into it, and then we'll read the other one. All right, so let's read. Jesus is moved with compassion. All right, Mark chapter 6, verse 13. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, 
This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, no, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fishes, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay? So recap, uh, Jesus had sent his disciples out in pairs, and they come back, and they're on a high. They've, have, they've been so successful, and they tell everything that they have done to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus wants for his disciples is for them to get some rest. To, he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Um, but what happens at this point is that Jesus, Mark tells us that Jesus' pop, his popularity is, is reaching an all-time high. And so everyone hears about you know, Jesus and his disciples, and they want to you know, see him. They want to see uh, this man that they've heard about. And they run from the surrounding towns and villages to where Jesus and his disciples are going. And they get there. They see this great crowd. And, uh, and, and Jesus, uh, we're told that Jesus has compassion um, on them, right? They see 5,000 people. And Many commentators believe that actually it's way more than 5,000 people because only the heads of families uh, would have been counted. So only men would have been counted. So could it be anything from two to three times as many um, people? You know? So think about like 10 or 15,000 uh, people waiting for Jesus on the shore as he arrives with his disciples. And I've got this little picture, which is not, the quality is not that great, but it will give you a little idea. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples, they arrive, they get... Uh, to the shore, uh, Bethsaida, the, the plains of Bethsaida, right? And that's that middle part where that arrow is pointing, that like green uh, piece of uh, land there. And uh, that's where Jesus and his disciples end up. And you can almost just imagine, right, just that space, just, you know, filled with people who have rushed there from surrounding towns, okay? And, uh, and we read the words, you know, that, um, that Jesus had compassion on them because he saw them and they were like sheep uh, without a shepherd. And we begin to see something about Jesus' uh, shepherd heart, right? Firstly, we notice how he is compassionate towards his disciples. They come to him. They've uh, been on a, a bit of a, you know, the first mission trip and been away in pairs, and it's been massively successful. They come back to Jesus. They want to tell him, and, and Jesus doesn't say to them, great job. Uh, here's your next assignment. No, he says, hey, come away by yourselves with me and rest for a while, okay? And even though this specific time, uh, they don't get to rest for a little while because of this great crowd. We begin to see something of the rhythm, okay, that Jesus has for his disciples, a rhythm of like doing and resting and doing and resting. And um, I just think about the last couple of months, you know. For me, if I think about, hey, what is the, uh, the one thing probably that I would want to take out of this season over the last couple of months and take into whatever season um, is ahead, it's just this thing of slowing down. Okay? We've all been forced to slow down in some ways. But, uh, man, I remember like city life is like you ask anyone, how are you doing? And it's like, I'm busy. You know? I'm worn out. I've, there's just so much going on. And so um, you know, we've kind of been forced to have our calendars cleared uh, over the last little while. But there's some good in that, right? There's some good in that. Over the last couple of months, 
um, you know, we've been speaking about, hey, that there's an even deeper race just to kind of have a, you know, empty calendar that we call to, um, that we call to be with Jesus and cultivate, you know, a sense of depth in our relationship with him. And we've spoken about things like silence and solitude, you know, having rhythms of silence and solitude in your day. And for me, it's, you know, it's, it's maybe not waking up and having Twitter dictate the first thoughts in my head uh, in the morning, right? And we've spoken about like Sabbath rest, just this idea of 24 hours that your week just flows into and flows out of, in a sense, just handing control over, just recognizing I'm, I'm actually not ultimately controlling my life, you know, in my time. And this time is your, yours, God, and I want to enjoy you and I want to enjoy your creation. And so there's this amazing, just this theme of rest, right, that we've been speaking about over the last little while. And, that's, and we clearly see it. It's like this is part of Jesus's rhythm. This is part of his life, and it's what he wants for his disciples, to practice his presence, right? It's been so life-giving um, for me over the last little while. Jesus wants to give them rest. He wants to restore them. He's the great shepherd. Think of Psalm 23 that says, the Lord is my shepherd, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul, this rhythm of doing and resting, doing and resting. And when do we miss this? We miss this when we often go from what? Doing to doing, to doing, to doing in a sense. And sometimes it's doing to just crashing and binge-watching Netflix or doing to doing to I just need to get out of the city uh, for a weekend because I'm just, you know, I'm going to explode because there's just so much happening in my life at the moment, right? That's when we miss it. There's this beautiful rhythm that Jesus calls us to, right? So we see Jesus' shepherd heart towards his disciples, but we also see his shepherd heart towards the crowd, right? They see see this crowd and we told that Jesus says, he looks at them and they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he gives them them himself, in a sense. He he teaches them, right? And just a few things about sheep. Um, You know, if Harry was here, it would be great. He would agree with me. Um, But, okay, sheep are not self-sufficient. I've never seen a self-sufficient sheep. Uh, The life goal of a sheep is green grass, right? Green pastures. That is the good life for a sheep. Uh, They're vulnerable without a shepherd. And, uh, And sheep, here's an interesting thing about sheep. Sheep actually can, if they're not looked after, they get quite woolly, okay? They can get quite round with excess wool, and they just, you know, eat too much green grass. And the danger there is that they can fall over, you know? They can fall over into a ditch, and they kind of just, their legs just going up in the air. And, uh, and they, you know, they, 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 they're vulnerable to prey, and they can die. They just can't get back up on their feet, okay? And a shepherd, obviously, you know, prevents all of that and looks after and cares for and checks for disease and makes sure that, you know, that, that excess wool, which might cover their eyes and is sheared away and cut away. And, and Jesus gives himself, you know, we know that Jesus is the great shepherd. And the climax of the story, while Jesus is teaching um, this crowd of people, uh, his disciples you know, they come up to him, and you can imagine, you know, they've had a little discussion amongst themselves, and they're thinking, okay, what do we need to do in this moment? Um, you know, I know, you know, the loving thing is to go to Jesus and tell him to send the people away, because it's getting late, it's later in the afternoon, and people are going to start getting hungry, all right? And so they go, and they say this to Jesus, and, um, and I love Jesus's response, right? I love his response. He says to them, no, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. I wish I was there to see their faces, right? Thousands of people and says, hey, no, you go and get them something to eat or you feed them. Imagine Greenpoint Park, okay? It's like packed with people and we get Milan. Milan is head of the lunch committee, 
okay? And half an hour before lunch, we say, Milan, listen, can you go and organize food for these thousands of people? And Milan will probably sit there and he'll say like, okay, guys, we can maybe go to the McDonald's and get like 500 cheeseburgers and cut it into quarters, you know, and maybe, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we, can, we can maybe feed a thousand people and, and maybe we'll go to Giovanni's, but Giovanni's is too expensive, so our money won't go very far, Giovanni's, so we won't go to Giovanni's, okay, but there's a spa right next to it. But um, the point is, you can imagine what's going through their minds in this time. They're trying to, like, frantically think, Jesus, what are you asking, you know? What are you talking about, okay? And um, they're probably quite confused and frustrated. Jesus, are you, are you being serious? And uh, I think there are times in our lives, right, where Jesus might be asking something of us, and uh, we read in his word, and we might say, like, what, are you asking me to What? You're asking me to love my neighbor? Have you met that guy? You know? You're asking me to be generous with my finances, my hard-earned money. You're asking me to give my best at work, right? Do you know where I work? Have you met my boss? Right? Are you asking me to share my faith? And in this instance, you know, you're asking us to uh, feed the thousands of people. And of course, you know, the disciples in this moment, like we see it, but they forget who it is that is asking them to feed these thousands of people, right? The one who invented, uh, you know, the very concept of nutrition and food and hunger is the one who calls them and asks them and instructs them to step out and feed these 5,000 people, right? And Jesus says, what do you have? And what they have is obviously, you know, completely insufficient and not enough. They've got five loaves and two fishes, which they've and Jesus takes it, and thousands of people are fed, right? And it's just this beautiful picture of partnership that Jesus involves his disciples, uh, and he uses what they have, right? Jesus could have gone like that, and it's just like this fine dining, you know, just waiters from everywhere that just runs to everyone and serves them, you know, meal after meal. But Jesus uses, it's this beautiful picture of like partnering with his disciples, and, and it's like the natural coming alongside the supernatural and the insufficient just coming alongside what is absolutely more than enough, and Jesus does the extraordinary with the ordinary. And I want us to notice from this account, right, just a few things. Firstly, uh, Mark refers to um, Jesus' miracles, right? He, f- he refers to his miracles as signs, okay? Now, if Jesus just wanted to, you know, display his power um, he could probably do it in a better way than feeding 5,000 people, right? He could fly up over the Sea of Galilee and just, you know, do amazing air acrobatics and do amazing stuff with the, uh, with the water in the lake and make it fly and do all kinds of things, right? That would be, um, you know, probably a better way to, you know, feed 5,000 5, people uh, if, you, if you just wanted to display his power in a sense. But uh, Mark says Jesus' miracles are, are signs, right? He calls them signs, and his signs, his miracles are always uh, two things, that they show um, his redemptive power. They show his kingdom breaking through and bringing restoration to brokenness. And his signs always a picture of what is to come, right? This future kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And it's amazing that, hey, when, when Jesus, you know, feeds the hungry and he raises the dead and he drives out demon, demons and he heals the sick, it shows that Jesus is bringing restoration, that Jesus is not satisfied with the current state of the world. Jesus is not satisfied with the current state of the world, right? And so his signs show both his redemptive power and his future kingdom. 
breaking through. And in, in this specific you know, instance where we see him feeding the multitudes, this sign is an is a illustration of what Jesus is actually teaching the crowds, okay? Yes, Jesus is meeting their physical needs, but he's pointing them to a much deeper need inside their hearts and inside their souls, right? Jesus is meeting their physical need, but he's pointing them. That's the, the, the feeding of the thousands of people is just an illustration of what Jesus is actually wanting to bring across. And that is that, yes, he's feeding, um, he's meeting their physical needs, but he's pointing them to a deeper physical need, right? In John chapter 6, to the same crowd, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus miraculously provides for their physical need, but hey, he says there's a deeper need, a deeper hunger that physical bread is not going to meet. Only I can meet your need, right? And in the Greek language, there's two, there's two words for life. There's bios life, and then there's zoe life, okay? Bios life is, is just the fact that you're alive. It's the fact that your heart is beating. It's where we get the word biology from. But then you get Zoe life, right? Zoe life is abundant life that's over the top, right? Soul-satisfying life. Um, beginning of this year, Albrey and I were given a, a gift, a voucher to go and eat a fine, um, you know, fine dining meal in, at a wine farm in Stellenbosch. It's like a six-course fine dining meal, and it was amazing, okay? They kept on bringing out these incredible dishes, these small things that I didn't actually even know what it was. Some of it was like, you know, there was like smoke coming out of it and soup, and it was just, uh, it was incredible, right? And I remember thinking, man, you know, this is, this is, this is over the top in a sense. This is so much. This is so much more than I need. This is like abundant, and in the same way, that is like, you know, that's what Zoe life is, and we know what it's like when you're working at home, or you're at the office, and you're hungry, and you just, you know, want to you know, um, tie over the hunger until dinner and you have a little piece of toast. That's bios life, okay? All right, so you get bios life and you get Zoe life. Zoe life is the six-course fine dining wine farm experience, you know, and bios life is the piece of toast. And Jesus, by providing for their bios life, he's saying, hey, guys, there's something much deeper that you desire. There's something so much more than uh, that, that, I, that, um, that I have for you. I have Zoe life for you. And he's saying, feast on me, right? Feast on me. And there's a couple of scriptures. The Bible often speaks about Jesus um, quenching that thirst or us going to him to um, deal with that hunger in, our, in the deepest part of our souls. And Jeremiah 2 verse three, 13 is one of those places. And it really, it, it speaks about it in the negative, right? It says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water, right? These were wells or cisterns that were meant to hold water, but Jeremiah is saying is those wells don't hold water. They crack, they're broken, it just leaks out water. And that deep, like, thirst in our souls, when we try to fill it with anything else, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't get to the deepest part of our, of our soul, right? The broken cisterns that we try to... Um, look to for satisfaction, and they can't possibly satisfy us. It's like having a leaky bucket that you keep, keep on pouring water into, and it just keeps on flowing out. It doesn't properly satisfy. And Psalm 107 says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. C.S. Lewis is so good on this. Listen to 
him. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first take up some subject that excites us or longings are longings which no marriage, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped that in that first moment of longing which fades away in the reality. I think everybody knows what I mean, right? The spouse can be a good spouse. You may have a very good job, but something has evaded us. I love it. I think everybody knows what I mean, right? Seriously, it's like we all know, right? Even the best things, the best marriage, the best career, the best things that you can think of will eventually fade away. It's like the broken cistern. It doesn't get to the deepest part of your soul, right? And it can't satisfy us because the simple truth is this, that our souls are made to be satisfied by its creator, right? Our souls are meant to be satisfied by God. That's the deep thirst that Jesus is saying to that crowd. He's saying, there is a thirst. Yes, I'll you know, multiply bread miraculously, but there's a deeper hunger inside of you that only I can satisfy. And St. Augustine sums it up. He says, I believe that the soul's proper abode and its homeland is God himself by which it was created. And so in that moment, Jesus displays the most incredible compassion towards this crowd. He sees them as lost sheep without a shepherd, and he gives them himself. In a sense, Jesus gives them himself, and he says, feast on me. I am what your soul uh, is longing for, right? He wants to be the sustenance of our lives. And yet some of us, we so often, we run to things that we think is going to satisfy us deep down inside. And uh, we try to meet our you know, those deep desires in all kinds of unhelpful ways. And Christ tonight is inviting you to come back to the table, to come back to him and to feast on him, right? And so for some of you, you may be, think like, hey, I've, I've never known what that kind of satisfaction is like. And for some of you, it may be, hey, I've, I've, I think I've forgotten, you know, what that is like. And Jesus is saying, come, come to the table, right? He wants to satisfy you tonight. Psalm, the Psalm says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? He wants to satisfy you. He's a compassionate shepherd. He is, uh, he's offering you Zoe life, right? Don't settle for the piece of toast, but settle for the fine dining, you know, wine farm experience, over the top, abundant uh, Jesus that is calling you to come and feast on him. So that's the first thing. Jesus is moved with compassion. Let's continue reading. He's also moved to action, Okay. So verse 45 says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So after feeding the multitudes of people, 
in a picture on the shore, uh, Jesus tells us, uh, tells his disciples to get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake. And, um, and if you look at the timeline, it's, you know, it's later in the afternoon, it's before the sun had actually set. And then we read how Jesus goes up in the mountainside and at the fourth watch of the night, which is around 3 a.m. You know, in the morning, he, um, he goes and walks towards his disciples miraculously on the lake. And so these guys, you imagine, you know, they're on the lake, they you know, battling strong winds for a couple of hours, okay? So they are spending, they must be, you know, frustrated, and um, they're trying to, you know, get to the other side, but they're not, for hours, they, they, they can't, right? And what's happening here? What's, what's happening? What does Mark uh, want us to see? And what is Jesus doing? Um, I think we're seeing discipleship in action, right? This is a masterclass in uh, discipleship. Uh, Jesus is advancing his kingdom, right? He came to launch this future kingdom, and the way that he's doing it is he's doing it through his church, right? When you follow Jesus, he doesn't say, great, welcome to the family, just stand aside while I continue what I'm uh, doing. No, he calls you to come and join him, right? And in, in this case, Jesus, he, these 12 men, he is, this is the start of the church, right? And it seems to me when we read these verses that one of the ways that Jesus forms his disciples is just is through successive exposure to trials, okay? We've seen it. He sent them out two by two to go and minister and cast out demons and heal the sick. It was massively successful. And then we, we see him, you know, placing them in this situation where he's saying, you feed all these thousands of people and they don't do too well in that specific instance. And now again, we see Jesus, how he has sent his disciples into, um, into a trial, right? Into a storm, and the thing is, he's preparing them for, for greater things. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this, says it so well. He says, this was a specimen of the hardships they were to expect. When hereafter, he should send them abroad to preach the gospel. It would be like sending them to sea at this time. With, their wind in their teeth, with the wind in their teeth, they must expect to, be, to toil in rowing. They must work hard to strive against so strong a stream. They must likewise expect to be tossed with the waves, to be persecuted by the enemies, and by exposing them now, he intended to train them up for such, such difficulties that they might learn to endure hardness. The church is often like a ship at sea, tossed with tempests and not comforted. Uh, not comforted, we may have Christ for us, yet wind and tide against us. But it is a comfort to Christ's disciples in a storm that their master is in the heavenly mount interceding for them, right? So we see Jesus just forming his disciples, it seems like his pattern is to form them through uh, successive trials. And you, you think about this, think about, you know, if you wanted to run, right, you wanted to run a marathon next year, hopefully, you know, Cape Town Marathon, and you've never really run before, you wouldn't just, you know, start off with 42 kilometers, you'd maybe go on a promenade and run from, you know, um, lamppost to lamppost, and then walk a little bit, and then run a little bit again, and then you might do Greenpoint Park Run, right, you might aim for that 5k, and you'd work your way up, right? You would gradually work your way up. Ask Dirk, you know, running 100 kilometers. He didn't just run 100 kilometers right off the bat, but it's been, uh, you know, there's been training that's taken place. There's been facing that initial resistance, that growing resistance that has built up, you know, strength and endurance in a sense. And it seems to me that that is, you know, the method of Jesus with his disciple, right? Disciples. Jesus forms these 12 men in this way. And, and I think, you know, we can expect for him to do the same in our lives. And you may be like, oh, no. But, um, but there's good news, right? There's good news. 
I think if we look at why, why does Jesus do it in this way, and for two reasons. Firstly, it's those, in those trials and in those storms of life um, that what is in our hearts are exposed, right? When we squeeze, what's inside comes out in a sense. And potentially there may be false hopes in our, in our hearts and those trials and those storms expose you know, what is really going on. And secondly, it's often in the trials and the storms, and we know this, right, that we recognize and realize where our true hope actually is. It's in the trials and the storms where we have a certain amount of clarity that we begin to see you know, where our real hope is, is when those trees are shaken in our lives, right? And we know what is the rock um, that we should go to. And Jesus spoke about this in the parable of the house built on sand, right? And he says, uh, he, didn't, he doesn't say if the waves came, he says when the waves came, right? When the waves came and he calls us to build our house on rock. And practically, hey, if you're, you know, it plays out in a number of ways. If, you're, if your life, if your identity is built on outward appearance and looks, then, you know, the storm of aging, which is going to come, will crush you, right? Or if your life is built on career or money, um, or the economy, or the stock market, and if that is where your identity is, is in the title of your career, of what's on your email, then the storm of recession, friends, will, 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 will crush you, right? Those things aren't wrong, career, and marriage, and um, you know, fitness, and all that stuff is not wrong, but when that is your identity, right, then you're building your house on sand. It's like Jesus says, hey, that's like shifting sands, right? But there's a rock, there's a rock that Jesus comes and he says, hey, I am the rock that you can build your house on. I'm the one that doesn't change. You know, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus remains the same. He is the Messiah. He's unchanging. And that is what his disciples, what Jesus is teaching his disciples in that moment, right? You imagine the scene. They, they've been spending hours in this boat in the middle of a storm. They can't get anywhere. They are frightened. They are worried. They're probably asking questions like, why, you know, did Jesus send them into, you know, what he must have known as a storm, and he's not with us, and where is he? And it's like, Jesus, how can you actually let this happen? And it potentially feels like, hey, maybe for us in the last, you know, couple of months, as, as um, you know, there's been some real storms, right? And some of us are still very much in those storms right now. I just think of some of the, you know, people in our community, like, just the economic uncertainty and the bad medical reports. And right, maybe asking those same questions like, Jesus, where are you in this moment, right? Maybe you can relate to the confusion and the frustration that these disciples are experiencing this moment in the boat. And, and I want to point you to just three encouragements, right? Three amazing, beautiful encouragements that we read, that we get out of this account. And the first one is this, that, that Jesus is praying for you, Okay? Jesus is praying for you in the middle of the storm. Note how Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, right? He knew that there would be a storm, and he sends them into it. And what does he do? What do we read he does? He goes up on the mountainside, you know, and he had a good view of his disciples. And what does he do? He prays for them, and he intercedes for them. And we're told that Jesus is interceding for us right now, right? I love that. And what do we... You know, if we, if we look at John 17, it gives us an idea of what Jesus is, is praying for. He's praying, he's saying, Father, keep them in your name, right? Those which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He prays further on in that prayer. He says, let my joy be in them, Lord, 
You know, Father, keep them in your name. I love that. Jesus is interceding. The one who holds, you know, all things together with the power of his word, the creator of heavens and earth, is interceding for your life in the middle of that storm, as we see Jesus doing for his disciples. Here's the second thing, is that Jesus is, uh, in the midst of the storm, Jesus is revealing himself to you. Right? Through the trials and the storms of life, your, your knowledge of him will deepen. We see that happening in the lives of the disciples, right? Fast forward from this moment, they're in a boat, and you go read the book of Acts, and you see how they were persecuted and thrown in jail, and they went through all kinds of, you know, um, like horrible things. And, and what happened in between these guys in the boat, you know, and the disciples we read about in the book of Acts, you know, the, it's a storm, really. It's not as bad as what they eventually would go through. Is this, that, they, that their faith and their love and their knowledge and their intimacy of you know, Jesus, their trust of who he is, uh, deepened over time through all the trials and through all the storms. They grew in their trust of Jesus, right? And Jesus walks underwater and he goes into uh, the storm and he walks toward them miraculously and he says those words like, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid, right? Paul mentioned those three things that Jesus says over and over again. He says, don't be afraid, right? I'm with you, it is I. And those words, it is I, is actually very significant. It's the same word that, words that, uh, that when Moses is standing in, in front of the burning bush and he says, who shall I say sending me? And God says, I am who I am, right? And those I am, that's the same words when Jesus comes and he says, take courage, do not be afraid, I am right? That's what he's saying, I am. And in that moment, you know, Jesus is revealing his true self to those disciples again. He's revealing himself as the creator God, right? The living God. He's saying, take heart, do not be afraid. It is I. It is I. Here's a third encouragement that in the midst of the storm, Jesus is present. He's present. He's with you in the boat. He supernaturally enters into their circumstances, right? And he, he entered supernaturally into our greatest storm, right? Which was sin and the wrath of God. And that's what makes Christianity so unique because, you know, every other religion will try and get you to pull yourself out of the storm. Hey, but Jesus entered into our storm, right? He entered into the mess of humanity, right? He came towards us. He knew that we were helpless. He knew that we were sheep without a shepherd. And the great compassionate shepherd comes towards us and he enters into our story, and he says, the creator, the I am, the creator God, is with you. Do not be afraid. I find that massively encouraging, right? And so if Jesus has taken care of the greatest storm, which is sin and the wrath of God, how much more can we trust him in the midst of the storms of our lives, right? How much more can we trust him and give over to him? And yes, sometimes we don't know. We don't know, right? We may not see the purpose and reason for Whatever storm it is that we may be going through, but we can know one thing, that Jesus is going to use every single storm. He's going to use every single storm to, do, to bring about something, to change your heart, to, to, for you to know him better. It's an opportunity for you to know him for who he is. And he is with them, the I am. He is with us. It's right there in his name, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Right? When Jesus ascends into heaven, his final words are, Behold, I'm with you always. I'm with you always. And in 
finally, note how in verse 52 it says that, hey, these disciples, they were astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. And Dick Lucas says um, they still don't fully get who Jesus is, right? These disciples, they, um, they, it, it's, it takes quite a while for them to understand who Jesus is. They still don't fully get who Jesus is. And although they know Jesus can do the impossible, they fail to apply this knowledge to their present situation, both the feeding you know, of the multitudes of people and in the midst of their storm. And faith, friends, is reminding ourselves in practical situation who Jesus is. It's it's living on his character. It's holding fast to his promises and, who, and what he's told us about himself. It's holding fast to the fact that, yes, Jesus uh, loves me. He is with me, and he's calling me not to be afraid, right? Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Jesus calls you to look to him, Right? And in Mark chapter 8, there's an account where uh, there's another multitude of people that Jesus feeds, the 4,000, and um, afterwards he says to his disciples, who do, disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say um, you're a great prophet. And, and he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it seems to me like Jesus is again and again graciously getting this point over to his disciples like, who do you say that I am? And I feel like tonight, hey, man, God is inviting us back to the table, right? And he's saying to you, hey, who do you say that I am, right? Am I just a great teacher? Am I just, you know, the guy you grew up, saw enough school, you know, um, that you learned about in the children's Bible? No, he's the powerful Messiah, the I am, right, that has entered into our storm and he's coming towards you. And I want to point you to him tonight. So we're going to pray. I'm going to invite Albury up, and then Paul's going to lead us in communion. So do you pray with me? Father, we, no, we thank you, God. Thank you that you are uh, glorious and good. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't you know, stand on the sidelines and shout instructions for us to kind of, you know, for us to help ourselves in a sense. But you recognize that we are utterly helpless, and you entered into the mess story into our storm you made a way Christ you stood in a gap right you, you sin had come and broken just a, driven a division between us and God who our souls long for Christ you came and you made a way for us to be satisfied and so we worship you tonight Jesus thank you for your compassion thank you that you are a God of action thank you that we can trust you that not a storm is wasted yourself to us and you're with us. Help us to look to you. Help us to hold fast to you, to your character and to your word. Amen. So there's an invitation for us to take communion together. So if you want to stand up, there's some elements at the back and at the front. Um, come and collect those and then go back to your seats. There's been a lot said here in worship. Steph's opened the word to us and so I'd ask you to think of the final thing five or six things that have been said, but to actually let one float to the top, silence the other ones and let one float to the top. Just allow God to focus in on either one aspect of himself, a promise you've forgotten about, but allow one thought to become clear in your mind as you invite his work in your life. So come grab some of the elements, and once I've allowed a few minutes, I will lead us in taking communion together.
we think about God matters, what He reveals to us matters. I was reflecting in preparation for this communion that um, the night Jesus betrayed, He said, take and eat. That was the offer. He said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. This is my life. Those words were an echo of what happened in the garden in Genesis when Satan looked at the tree and said, come on, take and eat. Take and eat. Come and eat it led astray. It seems like there's no shortage of offers out there in the world to take and eat. Many things promising the good life. Many things promising that this is a firm foundation. But yet there's only one who truly is a firm foundation who when you partake of his life take part in the Zoe life the life that is really life who maybe starts as a seed but it grows and grows and grows as the kingdom comes. So the source of the promise is important. Many people say, take and eat, take and eat. But there's one who laid down his life to enable us to do so. And so as we take the bread, the cracker, symbolizing his, his body broke for us, and as we take the juice, symbolizing his life, let's see beyond just the elements to the source who's laid down his life for us and say, God, you're good. We partake of your life now. Let's do that together.